All right, Shabbat Shalom again. I think we're ready to go here. Uh, last week, we ended off at verse 4, at least the last half, right? We looked at that. Today, we're going to continue in verse 5, and we're going to see this, that the writer is relentless. He's delivering one life and death principle after another. He just keeps stacking these things. And so it's just intensity that is pouring forth from this entire epistle. It's, it, it, I mean, you look at it in its totality, it's uh, one of the most intense readings you'll get. Let your conduct be without covetousness. Let your conduct be without covetousness. I want to put the Greek up here. And it's a philarguros. You don't want to try to say that multiple times. But it really means just simply not possessing that love for the world. You don't possess the love of money. You don't have that greedy heart. You don't have a heart that is geared towards covetousness. And so the writer comes out here right off the bat. He's like, this is what you're supposed to be. Don't, you need, your heart needs to be, your character needs to be without this. Now, when we think of this, when I think of it anyways, when, I, when, when you start talking about covetousness, immediately my mind goes to the Ten Commandments. The Aseret HaDevarim, the final commandment, Lo Tachmod, you shall not covet. You're not to covet your neighbor's house, you're not to covet your neighbor's wife, you're not to covet his manservants, his uh, female servants, his ox, his donkey. And then he sets off with this final phrase, nor anything that is your neighbor's. Covet nothing. Why? Because covetousness, as you get to Colossians chapter 3, verses 5 and 6, he tells you covetousness is idolatry. And this is where you get into Ezekiel 14. You are putting idols up in your heart. Israel had lifted idols up in her heart. And the Lord was enraged with Israel because they did this. And then when you look at what Paul says, as he's talking about covetousness, which is idolatry, the very next verse he says, the wrath of God is coming for you. You will face the wrath of God. And so this is a very serious topic. You know, you don't usually hear covetousness taught with such intensity on a life and death scale. In fact, I could tell you, even in my own life, in, in, in regard to the Ten Commandments, this is one that just, you don't give it a whole lot of thought sometimes, and maybe it's because we don't want to. But we don't put this in a category, man. If you do this, if you don't take every thought captive to the obedience of Christ, you're going to die. I mean, we don't look at this particular sin in this way, but today I, I think I'm hopefully going to change your mind on that. Now the writer goes on and says this. He gives us the antidote to covetousness. It's very simple. Be content with such things as you have. For he himself has said, I will never leave you nor forsake you. There's the antidote. If you want to fight and combat covetousness, you need this. You need contentment. You need to be able to grasp this. And so to help us do this, I, I want to break into 1 Timothy chapter 6. And we're going to begin here with this. We'll build upon what the writer is saying. Now godliness, oh look at this, with contentment is great gain. In other words, what the writer is saying, you want true riches. I mean covetousness is birthed out of desire. You want to be great. You want great possessions. You want wealth. You want whatever it is. This is what it's birthed out of. And what Paul says, he says, listen, do you want to truly be rich? Then get contentment. Have godliness with contentment. This is how we do it. Now moving on to verse 7. 
For we brought nothing into this world, and it is certain we can carry nothing out. Interesting. You know, many, many years ago, I saw this show, and it was, a, it was a, you know, one of those weird shows where the whole idea, it's kind of a game show where you've got to fill as much as you can. You've got to, you have a cart, and you can run into this store, and you get like 30 seconds to a minute, and you've got to fill that cart with as much as you can, and, and whatever you feel, you get the dollar amount, and you get to have that stuff. And the show is amazing because it reminds me of this world and the pace of this world. And, and it's like a snapshot of how we function in this world. We have our little carts and we're running through, trying to beat the clock as quickly as we can, shove as much stuff in our cart as we can. See, but, in, in, you know, let me take this show a step further. What would happen if they go through this, they go through all that pain with their cart and stuff falling out all over and them trying to get all this stuff in and then only to come to the end of it and expect to go out the front door with that cart because I, I collected all this stuff only to be stopped by someone said, well, no, you know, the cart stays. Everything in your cart stays here. You can go. What a buzzkill. This is what Paul is saying. The apostle Paul is saying you can run around like a madman, mad woman, and try to collect all the stuff you can. You're not leaving with it. You're not going to get out the door. And then he goes on and he says this. And having food and clothing. With these we shall be content. You know you think of the western mindset. This is poverty. If what you're telling me. I just need to have just the clothes. The shirt on my back. And my daily food. That's poverty. Most people would describe that as poverty. Let me ask you a question. How do you fare in poverty? How would you fare just having the shirt on your back and your daily food that just is enough to get you through? You don't starve to death. Can you be content in this context? Because I'm going to tell you right now, we find out who people really are when all of a sudden they start to lose all their stuff, their financial security. I'm going to tell you, I saw this was many years ago. And I'll never forget it because I just saw what it did to the man. This guy lost his financial security, lost his job, burned through his savings. You know what happened? The marriage was next. Couldn't help it. He couldn't handle this situation. Everything that he put stock in was taken from him. What happens to you when this comes? What happens when there's, there's no more vacations? You don't have that luxury available to you anymore. What happens when you can't get that, that fantasy house that you've been dreaming of? Or that you may live in it now and, and you're going to lose it. What happens to you? Does this invoke depression? Does this invoke murmuring and complaining? Does sorrow begin to come into your heart? This is terrifying. I think of Matthew 19 because the, the young rich man, he comes to Yeshua and you guys know this passage by heart. He comes to him and says, what must I do to inherit the kingdom of heaven? And, you know, Yeshua gives him, you've got to keep the commandments. He's like, yeah, I've done this. One of the most terrifying things about that story is he's like, I'm good. I've done this. What do I still lack? And you can only imagine. Now, it, it says young man. So thinking he's riding high here, he's doing good. Yeshua is about to flip his world upside down in a matter of seconds. Just by this simple phrase, well, one thing you lack Here's the deal. Go sell everything you have. Give it away and come and follow me. That one statement flipped his world upside down because you know what it said? 
It said he went away sorrowful. He was devastated, totally debilitated. Because where was his heart? It was with his stuff. And what did Yeshua, by that statement, he ripped out his heart. Where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. When your heart is with your treasure and Yeshua attacked that and said, dump it, he couldn't handle it. What happens to us? And I'm going to tell you, listen to me very carefully, because this message is going to become far too tangible for many of you in the very near future. As we're coming in to what we're seeing in Bible prophecy, as we're coming into what we see happening in this country, I wonder how we will respond. I wonder if we can be content in that state. Or are we going to be in despair? And if we're in despair, I'm going to tell you right now, that is not a good sign of where we're at in our faith. And you'll see that as we get in further today. Moving on to verse 9. But those who desire to be rich, in other words, you've given your heart over to covetousness. You desire to be rich, what happens? They fall into a temptation and snare, and into many foolish and harmful lusts, which drown men in destruction and perdition. That perdition means total ruin, total loss. In other words, when you go after the things of the world, they're going to bury you in them. You're going to get buried in it. Covetousness, understand something, it doesn't take prisoners. Leaves no survivors. Verse 10. For the love of money is the root of all kinds of evil, for which some have strayed from the faith in their greediness and pierced themselves through with many sorrows. You remember what Paul says to the the Corinthians in his second epistle? He starts out great. He goes, godly sorrow... That's wonderful. Godly sorrow produces repentance and it leads to salvation. Not to be regretted. But the sorrow of the world produces death. In other words, if you're struggling with depression and you're upset because you don't have this or you don't have that, your life isn't where you really wanted it to be in comparison to everyone else. As you're looking at this, you have a serious problem. Godly sorrow, death is working in you. And it's leading you off a cliff. I want to put this into perspective with an actual biblical account. I want to take you back to the story of Joshua. Joshua and the Israelites, the the whole thing. We covered this story uh, several weeks ago. The story of Jericho. And it's a fortified city, impenetrable. You have no chance of taking the city, double-walled. But with God, all things are possible. And so what happens is God tells Israel, I'm giving you this city. You're going to take it. However, because I'm going to do this, there's a few instructions I need to give you. Specifically instructions in regard to the spoils of war. Because here's the deal. To the victor go the spoils. And Israel was going to be the victor. But there's some instructions that need to be had. And so he lays these out. And this is what he says in Joshua 6.18. And you, by all means, abstain from the accursed things. It's interesting. Why does he even have to say this? Can't we just naturally say, yeah, well, I don't want to go something that, near something that's accursed, and of course I don't want to take it. No, 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 no. See, here's the thing. The fact that he is commanding this tells you something, that the accursed things that they're about to see are extremely desirable. They're going to want them. 
When they see them, they're going to desire them. They're going to want to possess them. This is necessary to say this. And so, abstain from the accursed things. And then he goes on to say why. He says, lest you become accursed when you take of the accursed things. You know, this kind of makes me think about Yeshua's statement to, in the Gospel of Luke. In Luke 16, verse 15, he goes, The things that are highly esteemed among men, which men of the world lift up, are an abomination to God. So here's the thing. When we, as believers in Yeshua, go after the things that are abominable to God, all that which is a vanity, what does that make you? It makes you an abomination. You want to grasp hold of the curse? You yourself will become a curse. Again, I tell you, I mean, you, you look at this message, you look at what the Bible has to say about covetousness, it's intense, it's weighty, it's heavy, it's frightening. And so he gives this warning, but it gets even worse than just you becoming a curse. But then it goes on and says, and make the camp of Israel a curse, and you will trouble it. Now, you want to bring trouble into your camp? You want to bring trouble into your family, into your home? Go after the things of the world. Cling to the things of the world. There's so many different avenues I could describe. And there's certain men taking certain promotions that require them to be taken out of the home more, to see their family less, to be a part of their family and in their children's lives less. I tell you now, you will pay the price for doing that. You will pay it. You will open your covetousness, your heart, going after the things that don't matter, will bring destruction on many people. It's not just going to be you. You can bring destruction on your own family. And this is the case. This is what the Lord's describing. It can, it can hurt the whole nation. But all the silver and gold and the vessels of bronze and iron are consecrated to the Lord. So here's the rest of the spoil. He brings it out. The silver and gold, it's the Lord's. They shall come into the treasury of the Lord. Now, as the story goes on, we know the story. Israel takes Jericho. Jericho falls. The only problem is they didn't listen to the message. They didn't listen to the instructions in regard to the spoils of war. And basically, what happens is they, well, let me put this, let me put this up here. Let's just jump to chapter 7, verse 1. But the children of Israel committed a trespass regarding the accursed things. For Achan, the son of Carmi, the son of Zavdi, the son of Zerah, of the tribe of Yehuda, took of the accursed things. Listen to this. So the anger of the Lord burned against the children of Israel. Now, let me ask you, do you really think Achan knew the Lord's emotion? The Lord's feeling at this point? Absolutely not. He knew nothing of his anger. All he saw was his covetousness. All he saw were the things that he wanted, that he desired when he went in there. He had no clue of what this does to the Lord. And now, this scares me, because how many times have we provoked the Lord to anger where we have wrath looming over us because our hearts are going after the things of the world? And we're meditating on the things of the world. We're spending all our ram and all our time and all our resources focusing on how to get more stuff. This is scary. This is how the Lord responds to covetousness. It angers him. And we need these reminders because it helps put stuff in perspective. How does the Lord feel? You know, my, most of my life, it's been about me. How does Daniel feel? The Lord has worked on me, nay, I say. 
quite a bit in the last few years, and it's about how he feels. And you know what that does? It creates a spiritual maturity. It creates safety nets. It's like, whoa, what, what does the Lord think about that? And, 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 you know, the old bracelet, what would Jesus do? This is how we, we need to live. And so, Achan takes of the accursed things, which doesn't just become a problem for him, it actually becomes a problem for Israel. Because here they just took the city of Jericho, impenetrable, impossible to take down, but through the power of God, it falls flat. Israel accomplishes the impossible. Well, now they're going to go to this little city next to it called Ai. And that city is a joke. In fact, Israel gives it no credence. We're not even going to send our full army. It doesn't even, this is nothing. Israel could simply walk over this city and conquer it. What happens? Israel goes and they flee before their enemies. Israel falls before nothing. They're weak and pathetic and they can't take them. They just took down Jericho, but now they don't have the power to do this. This is a great example. So you understand this is what happens when we embrace covetousness wholeheartedly. We set these idols up in our heart. We are worship, idol worshipers. We totally, we're ready to totally be picked apart. This is where you let Satan into your home and he starts causing strife, whether it's in your marriage between you and your kids. This is where you give the enemy authority. And who would have thought the simple little nothing of me desiring things, you know, sounds pretty harmless. It's not. It's deadly. When these things get lifted up over the Lord, it's deadly. When you give in to this, it's not, uh, it is not going to be good for your family. And so Joshua, he responds, he's devastated. He doesn't understand. He knows what he just did with Jericho. He doesn't understand what's going on with I. He was like, Lord, why? Why is this happening? And so the Lord responds, chapter 7, verse 11. Israel has sinned. That's why. And they have also transgressed my covenant. Now you think of the words of the covenant. We read these statements in the Torah, the words of the covenant, or how about the tablets of the covenant in Deuteronomy 9? What we think about the Ten Commandments. See, God's tablets of the covenant, that tenth commandment, thou shalt not covet, lo tachmod, has been broken, which I commanded them, for they have even taken some of the accursed things and have both stolen and deceived, and they have also put it among their own stuff. Verse 12, therefore the children of Israel could not stand before their enemies, but turned their backs before their enemies because they have become doomed to destruction. Sound familiar? Because didn't Paul say in, in 1 Timothy 6 that those who desire to be rich, they will be drowned in destruction. And this is exactly what's being conveyed here in the Torah. They've become doomed to destruction. Over what? Covetousness. I mean, this, that's, that's crazy when you think about it. This little sin, this little nothing of a sin of covetousness is changing their whole entire world. It's affecting an entire nation. And then the Lord warns Joshua, neither will I be with you anymore unless you destroy the accursed from among you. You either take care of this sin or I'm gone and none of you will have me. This is the reality. And we're going to jump ahead to verse 19. This is what we read. Now, Yehoshua said to Achan, my son, I beg you, give glory to the Lord God of Israel and make confession to him and tell me now what you have done. Do not hide it from me. 
And Achan answered Yehoshua and said, Indeed, I have sinned against the Lord God of Israel, and this is what I have done. Verse 21. When I saw, this is so vital, when I saw among the spoils a beautiful Babylonian garment, 200 shekels of silver and a wedge of gold weighing 50 shekels, what did he do? I coveted them and took them. And there they are hidden in the earth in the midst of my tent with the silver under it. You notice, when he saw. See, the lamp of the body is the eye. If the eye is good, the whole body is full of light. If the eye is bad, it will be full of darkness. It's a direct conduit to your heart. And as he set his gaze on what was beautiful, he gave himself over to that which is forbidden. Does that sound familiar at all? That's the story of the garden. Isn't it interesting how Satan allured Eve, he got her to look at the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. There's no recordation anywhere in the scripture that she had ever gazed upon it before. And she wouldn't because it was forbidden. But Satan got her to look at it, and the text says when she saw the tree was beautiful and desirable to make one wise, that's when she ate. That's when she ate of it. And so think about it. And, and this gets even crazier because when you see the, the term that's used in the Hebrew, chamad, back in uh, the Garden of Eden, when you see that, that, that term for desire, it's the exact same term that is being used in this passage. You know, our entire culture is built on attracting your eyes. It wants your attention. The devil is trying to funnel your attention constantly. And we talked about this last week. As you open up computers, as, as men are opening up their smartphones, trying to put anything to lure them into pornography. And women as well. And a matter with their eyes, they start coveting these, these photos and these images that they see, and they're gone. Entire corporations dedicate part of their businesses. They have marketing areas in totally to literally go out and allure the world, what they would call prospective clientele, to get them to buy their product. They're there, these marketing firms are there dedicated to get you to covet. Our entire system is based on covetousness. No matter how you say it, no matter how you want to twist it, this is what we have. This is why this nation, this is one of the significant reasons this nation is falling, is we're given into this covetousness. Well, getting back to our story, what happened to Achan? If you read Colossians 3, you 5 and 6, we know the wrath of God is going to be poured out. That's exactly what happened. He was stoned. Now, do you think for one moment, Achan, in that moment, looking at that beautiful garment, looking at all that silver and gold, and even the natural courses like, oh man, I want this stuff. It's here for the taking. Who's going to know? Do you think for one moment, if he saw the Ahari, if he saw the end, would he do it? Do you understand? The word of God shows us the end. It shows us the end. It tells you what's going to happen. We just don't believe it. And that's the problem. It's a faith issue. Again, I'll keep taking everything back to faith. You know, man, when, when, again, I tell you, when you look at covetousness through 
a biblical lens, this is when things get scary. This is when it begins to get real. Covetousness is a killer, which means we need to work on obtaining contentment. This is what we need to do. We need to grasp contentment. It needs to be something that is viable, that is tangible to us, that we're actually walking out. I want to share with you an excerpt from one of my favorite preachers, known as the Prince of Preachers, Charles Spurgeon. Spurgeon gave a message in 1860 at his church on contentment. And he's got some precious pearls of wisdom that we can glean from in regard to this. And that's really going to help us ascertain this beautiful gift. What he says is this, contentment in all states is not a natural propensity of man. You got that? It isn't going to come naturally. Ill weeds grow apace. Covetousness, discontent, and murmuring, none of which are mutually exclusive, are as natural to man as thorns are to the soil. You have no need to sow thistles and brambles. They come up naturally enough because they are indigenous to the earth upon which rests the curse. So you have no need to teach men to complain. They complain fast enough without any education. No kidding. How many parents of you have children? Guess what? You don't need to teach them to do. You don't need to teach them to complain. And I'm going to tell you, you don't need to teach them how to covet. Now, I have four children. I can tell you, as they're young, when one of the siblings has a toy that the other wants, the other one just comes right on up and takes it. They see it. They want it. They covet it. That's mine. I'm going to go take it. I want it. I don't care if you're holding it. I don't care if you're playing with it. You don't need to teach kids to do this stuff. How crazy is this? Why is it that comes naturally? You know, it makes me think of what Apostle Paul says right in Romans 7. He says, the things that I will to do, I do not do. Uh, The things I hate, that I find. Why? Because it's natural in the flesh. It is completely indigenous to our flesh to go and covet. This is why it comes so easily. Contentment is not. Contentment has to be cultivated which is exactly what he goes on and says. But the precious things of the earth must be cultivated. If we would have wheat, we must plow and sow. If we want flowers, there must be the garden and all the gardeners care. Now contentment is one of the flowers of heaven. And if we would have it, it must be cultivated. In other words, you will have to work for this. You will have to fight for this. You will have to war. This means, how do we cultivate? This means taking time and spending time in prayer. This means taking time to hear the word of the Lord, what the Lord's instructions are for your life, and not just hear it. I'm telling you this, believe it. Because if you believe this, it will motivate you to do it. This is how we cultivate contentment and a time period and an environment that the world thinks is insane, that the world would call poverty, that the world would look on upon with contempt. This is pathetic. Look at their life. How could they possibly have any joy? They don't have any of the world's luxuries and everything it has to offer. And yet these are the same people that are committing suicide. 
These are the same people that are riddled with divorce. These are the same people whose lives are miserable. No matter what they do, they can't, as Mick Jagger says, can't get no satisfaction. Though they try. Don't make me sing the song, no. I want to take you to the Psalms, chapter 63. This is powerful. A Psalm of David, when he was in the wilderness of Yehuda, oh God, you are my God. Early will I seek you. My soul thirsts for you. My flesh longs for you. And a dry and thirsty land where there is no water, two things I want you to draw from this. Look at the heart of David. Early I will seek you. This, what means most to David is what he's thinking and seeking in the morning. This is telling of who you are. Are you seeking the Lord God? Are you seeking Yeshua's face in the morning? Yeshua says, seek ye first the kingdom of God. First and his righteousness. And this is what he's doing. And and his soul thirsts for him. What does Yeshua say in the Beatitudes? Blessed are those who hunger and thirst after righteousness. And here's a promise attached to it. You will be filled. You will be satisfied. You will be content. It will happen, but we don't believe it. We believe the lies of Satan. We'll only be content if we have this, this, and this. Then our lives will be content. No, then they will be hell because you're given into covetousness and you suppress the truth. Look at what he says, the second part of this, which is so huge as he's declaring his undying devotion to the Lord. He says it's in a context of in a dry and thirsty land where there is no water. It's completely destitute. It has nothing to offer. In other words, what is David proclaiming? He said everything that the world can offer is nothing. It's death. He understands this. Moving on to verse 2. So I have looked for you in the sanctuary. David is seeking the Lord. He doesn't stop. He's relentless. To see your power and your glory because your loving kindness, your chesed, his loving kindness is better than life. My lips shall praise you. David has exalted the mercy of the Lord above all things. It is more valuable to him than anything is his chesed, his loving kindness, his mercy. Verse four, thus I will bless you while I live. I will lift up my hands in your name. My soul shall be satisfied as with marrow and fatness. My mouth shall praise you with joyful lips. David, he's content. He is content. My soul is satisfied. How is it satisfied? He exalted chesed. He exalted mercy to the highest of heights. And that's the only place you will find that satisfaction, that contentment. Moses says the same thing David does. Moses said, oh, satisfy us. Oh, how? With your mercy. Moses gets it. This is how I'm going to be satisfied with your mercy that we may rejoice and be glad all our days. We want contentment. This is what we need. We need his mercy. And here's a terrifying thought. One that there have been times in my life I don't want to face. If I'm not content, if you can go home in your prayer closet and acknowledge some truth that, you know what, I'm not content. I know I'm not content. I've been struggling with depression and anxiety and all these fears. I'm struggling with all these fears. I am not content where I'm at. Though I have a shirt on my back, though I have my daily provision for food, I'm not content. 
Here's a reality. If in fact we only get contentment from embracing the mercy of the Lord, what does that tell you? If I don't have contentment, I don't have mercy. That's what I'm talking about when I say this teaching's intense. When we get confronted with realities like this, that I don't have that mercy. I'm not dwelling in the grace of Yeshua. I have not truly embraced it. And there's fruit to prove it because I'm not content. Scary thought. Proverbs 19, 23, let's build on this. The fear of the Lord leads to life. And he who has it, oh, will abide in satisfaction. He will not be visited with evil. So if, again, if I have the fear of God, I'm going to be content. No question about it. If I don't have contentment, I don't have the fear of God. Why is that a problem? Well, look at this. This is why it's a problem. The mercy and mercy and truth atonement is provided for iniquity. And by the fear of the Lord, one departs from evil. See, if I don't have the fear of the Lord, I will never depart from covetousness. It will not happen. It's impossible. So if I'm not content, we have a serious problem. We have a relationship problem. Let me highlight this top portion. And mercy and truth, atonement, is provided for iniquity. You go to John 1.17, and it says, The law was given through Moshe, but grace, mercy, and truth came through Yeshua. It comes through the Messiah, Yeshua. And so I, I want you to recognize here, as we're talking about mercy, that if I'm not content, I don't have mercy. You need to understand, if you're not content, you don't have Yeshua, the author and finisher of our faith. Something's wrong. Your relationship's broken. So in mercy and truth, atonement is provided for iniquity. This is prophetic of our Lord. Now, on that, let me take you to John 4. Yeshua, and this is the Samaritan woman at the well. Yeshua answered and said to her, whoever drinks of this water will thirst again. But whoever drinks of the water that I shall give him, guess what? They will never thirst. But the water that I shall give him will become in him a fountain of water springing up into everlasting life. Do you understand? When we truly have Yeshua, when we partake of the well of salvation, there's no question, we will be satisfied even with the shirt on our back and our daily bread. It will happen. You know, this is a Friday. You, you look out at the church as a whole that is engorged with material possessions and prosperity gospel. What filth. Totally delusional garbage. If we have the Lord, it is enough. We don't yearn for these things. We don't name it and claim it. That's nuts. So as we look at this in Hebrews chapter 13, and he says, let, us con let your conduct be without covetousness. Be content with such things as you have. And then he says, for he himself has said, I will never leave you or forsake you. Now you understand why the writer is utilizing Joshua chapter 1, making the statement in, con in context with covetousness. Because Yeshua needs to be enough. And when we are going after covetousness, we are saying what he did on the cross, what he promised to send his Holy Spirit to us, to indwell us, well, that's not enough. I need more. I mean, that's a blasphemous act. Of course, we don't think of it this way at the time. Because the devil gets you to turn your eyes 
upon what comes naturally to you and to desire it and not let it go and to dwell on it and to meditate on it when we should be meditating on the Lord. We should be meditating on his word. We should be taking the time just to thank him for all his goodness and all his beauty, for his creation, uh, for the blessings that we have. But we don't do that. We just continue to covet and to covet. It's, it's insane. Philippians 4, chapter, verse 11. Not that I speak in regard to need, for I have learned in whatever state I am to be content. The Apostle Paul is an excellent template of how we are to walk with the Messiah Yeshua. And he says, whatever state I am, to be content. Now, keep in mind, this is a guy that, that, that was accustomed to being thrown into prison. This was a guy that was actually whipped five times. This is a guy that was beaten with rod three times. This is a guy that was shipwrecked three times. This is the guy that talks about being in perils of the Gentiles and perils of the Jews and perils in the, in the wilderness and in the sea. I mean, this guy has been through it. A serpent latches onto his hand. This guy, after being shipwrecked, then he gets bit by a snake. I mean, this is one bad event after another, and not for a moment does Paul hesitate and acknowledge, I'm content because he had the Lord. He can sing and praise the Lord in prison. He has the fullness of Yeshua living in his heart. And this is what I'm saying. Are you there? I'm going to tell you right now, you need to get there really quick. Because what's coming to this country, you're only going to make it. If you're content, you're only going to make it if you have the fullness of the Messiah, Yeshua, living inside you. I know how to be abased and I know how to abound everywhere. And in all things, I have learned both to be full and to be hungry, both to abound and to suffer need. Now, you know, there's another thing that I I think about with Paul, the fact that he could be content. He was afflicted by a demon and he begged the Lord, take this thing off of me. And the Lord said, my strength is made perfect in weakness. It's enough. My grace is enough. I mean, I, th- I think of all these things and it just rips your whole world to shreds. Flips your whole world upside down. Proverbs 14, 14, the backslider in heart will be filled with his own ways. And think about this, right? Well, I'll finish it out. But a good man will be satisfied from above. It's enough. Yeshua is enough. But I, but I think about the backslider be filled with his own ways. And I, I think about last week in Balaam, a man anointed. He prophesied. God spoke to him in visions in the night. He saw the angel of the Lord. And yet, he backslid. He was filled with his own ways. I think of Demas. The apostle Paul says, Demas has forsaken me, having loved this present world. He coveted the world. He went back. He backslid. Judas Iscariot went, was part of the most famous, incredible ministry that has ever existed on planet Earth as a disciple of Yeshua, seeing unbelievable miracles. Yeshua walking on the water, raising the dead. His apostles, Judas included, went out casting out demons. And this guy sold Yeshua for 30 pieces of silver. Coveted. He, this is it was covetousness. He could get paid for this. I think of Gehazi. We're going to close with this. In 2 Kings 5.20, this is what we read. But Gehazi, the servant of Elisha, the man of God, said, Look, my master has spared Naaman, or Naaman, this uh, Syrian, while not receiving from his hands what he brought. But as the Lord lives, I will run after him and take something from him. 
Now you understand the backdrop was Naaman, he was the commander of the king of, of Syria, his army. He was a leper. And it was told to him, yeah, hey, there's a prophet in Israel. He can take care of your leprosy. He makes the travel to him, bringing great gifts to him so that he could be healed. What happens? He dips in the Jordan seven times. He's healed. Completely receives healing. And, and Naaman, he wants to give him the gifts that he brought. But guess what? Elisha won't take him because he knew this is a hand of the Lord. I had nothing to do with this. He simply commanded to go do what was instructed by the Lord. And he went and did it, and the Lord healed him. But his servant, Gehazi, thought differently. He was looking at all these lavish gifts. His eyes were affixed and go, I can, I can take advantage of this moment. We move to verse 21. So Gehazi pursued Naaman. When Naaman saw him running after him, he got down from the chariot to meet him and said, Is all well? And he said, All is well. My master has sent me, saying, Indeed, just now two young men of the sons of the prophets have come to me from the mountains of Ephraim. Please give them a talent of silver and two changes of garments. And so verse 23, and Naaman said, please take two talents. And he's going to double it. I'll give you two talents. He urged him and bound two talents of silver in two bags and two changes of garments and handed them to two of his servants and they carried them on ahead of him. They had to be carried with servants. There's so much that he's taken in. When he came to the citadel, he took them from their hand and stored them away in the house. Then he let the men go and they departed. Now he went in and stood before his master. Elisha said to him, where did you go, Gehazi? And he said, your servant did not go anywhere. Verse 26. Then he said to him, did not my heart go with you when the man turned back from his chariot to meet you? Is it time to receive money uh, and to receive clothing, olive groves and vineyards, sheep, oxen, male and female servants? It's an amazing statement because this is going way back. And Elisha is acting like I am living in the very end. Everything that we're doing, it is not time to go collect. It's not time to acquire these things. It's not time to lust after them. It's not time to covet. This is not the time for it. Not the time. Therefore, the leprosy of Naaman shall cling to you and your descendants forever. And he went out from his presence, leprous as white as snow. The leprosy that was on Naaman now moved to him. This is our future if we give in to covetousness. It's a hellish future. You do not want to be a part of this. And so this is, this is where we take the time to say, Lord, what have I exalted above you? What have I lifted up in my heart that is higher than you? What have I went after and yet sacrificed my time in the word or sacrificed my time in prayer, which shouldn't be? This is revival. It's these types of things that we need to embrace. Amen?